Welcome. This is episode 126 of The Professor and the Hack. I am the Hack, Hugh Rimminson. With me, as always, the Professor PVO, busy in there uh, you know, cutting coffees out because interest rates have gone up and your Vaucluse mansion is going to be hard to... Um... <laughs> that was very pejorative, Hugh, but yes, and I, uh, I won't look to sell anytime soon because I suspect that its price will plummet. But uh, my, my wife and I are lucky that our mortgage isn't such that uh, these rises are, are prohibitive. You know, most Australians or a lot of homeowners are, are in a pretty difficult situation with this. And, and it's not the end, is it? I mean, it, it's the end of the beginning, I would argue. I suspect. I, I took a cab ride today as I came into work. I put my clapped out old four-wheel drive in for a bit of a service and the cabbie was lamenting that uh, he's got six kids, Middle Eastern background, and he was saying that when interest rates go up, he was 51, so he's seen them go up before he's old enough. Many Australians are not old enough to remember when interest rates are going up like this. And he says the first thing that happens is people don't take taxis. Mm. And you'll see this, I think, in lots of places in the mortgage belt is that they're not going down to buy coffees, they're not down to their cafe, they're changing their purchasing choices because it is getting bloody expensive, these rises. And, and this is the delicate balance that the Reserve Bank has when it comes to monetary policy and interest rate rises, because it actually is economically fascinating, even though it's obviously very difficult for a lot of people, because the Reserve Bank, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, Hugh, the Reserve Bank has to put interest rates up to try to curb inflation. If they do it too fast or too hard, the risk is that they kill the economy. We probably wouldn't go into recession, just the nature of the Australian economy, but growth would be so low that it would result in things like higher unemployment. And there are all sorts of other implications to that as well. It would certainly be a revenue problem for government. But if they don't put interest rates up fast enough, they won't get inflation under control at 6.1%. According to the forecast, it's going to be 7.75. And if they don't do interest rates sufficiently quickly or high enough, then they won't get that under control. But of course, the thing that is almost an irony in this is that they are putting interest rates up to try to get cost of living under control by reducing inflation. But in the short term, that has all sorts of cost of living problems for people. If you've got a home loan, obviously the cost of living goes up for you because your mortgage repayments are going up. If you have an investment property, not only does it go up for you as the investor, because you also have the interest rate rise, but within the months to follow, the people renting those properties will most likely face a rental increase. All of which, as, as you were talking about, Hugh, curbs the spending of people because they're trying to find other ways in their discretionary spending, or, or if it's particularly dire for people, their non-discretionary spending, and they're trying to curb that. But that of itself has an economic impact, which can slow the economy. And the whole point about rate rises is to try to bring inflation under control without slowing the economy. And that's why it is such a delicate balance for the Reserve Bank. And it must be frustrating for governments because whether you think government is right or wrong in some of its fiscal settings, they don't ultimately have much control over this. They can make some fiscal parameter changes, which can help to bring inflation under control. But ultimately, we're talking about the Reserve Bank, its monetary policy, and it's whether or not you know, that they can get that under control via monetary policy settings. Yeah, and that's a context where you see Peter Dutton popping his head up and saying, well, gee, if people are under this kind of cost of living pressure, then uh, we should extend out the cut that they brought in in the budget just before the election to the fuel excise, which is saving everyone roughly 20 cents a litre on their fuel at the moment. 
it, it is a little bit cheeky. They brought in the cut, knowing that if they lost the election, it would go up during a Labour government. That's precisely where they are. Are there merits to what Dutton is saying, or is the government right to hold the line? Look, on balance, I think the government's right to hold the line, but uh, it, it is close to a 50-50 call because you, you can make arguments in both directions. I, I was critical of the decision at its infancy to, to cut the petrol or the fuel excise because I, I, I'm, I can see other ways that you could try to provide cost of living relief that is more targeted than that for people who are suffering cost of living pressures the most. It was Joe Hockey who said that uh, you know poor people don't drive cars. I wouldn't echo his sentiments, but nonetheless, when you correlate it, this is a fuel excise cut that is so broad-based by definition that it is not targeted towards the people who suffer the most when uh, when, when you have a cost of living crisis. And there are better ways to do it would be the, the way that I would put it. Yeah, it's funny because Frydenberg said that it was actually it took uh, half a percent off inflation because fuel price inputs flow through to everything that we buy. And so, therefore, if you're reducing that amount on fuel, then, um, you know, obviously not only is the fuel cost lower, artificially reduced through the tax reduction, but also everything that you buy that goes through to the supermarkets, et cetera, gets a slight trimming off of the cost of it. And so, therefore, the government is going to face two things when they take this off, assuming they do go ahead and take it off in late September. One is the immediate pain where people feel every time they're, they're, they're filling up and out of suburban areas, it's a huge cost. But also, it will itself add to inflation and therefore add to those pressures on the Reserve Bank to raise interest rates even higher. It's, it's a horrible dilemma. But if, if that's their calculation, then there, there are other ways, as I say, that are more targeted, that they could find ways to give people cost of living relief. How? For example, you could do one-off payments that are based on income. Uh, you could increase new start, but that's got longevity, which they probably don't want. Targeted payments, one-off cash handouts get a bad rap, understandably, by a lot of commentators because they tend to be pork barreling ahead of elections. Here we are three years out from the next election, but targeted handouts that are based on income are actually a, a pretty good way that the tax recipients, the government, can give money back to taxpayers without it having that elongated impact of being a long-term change, like putting up new start or like making an adjustment to, to what the bracket structure is of income taxes. So I, I'm actually quite in favour of those one-off payments if they're appropriately targeted and done for public policy reasons rather than obviously done as, a, as some sort of version of pork barrelling. So the other big uh, cost that's going up is energy prices, the wholesale price of gas going up by about 250% in the last year all kinds of pressures on the government. Peter Dutton has come out and announced his uh, solution to all of this, and that is a uh, wholesale review of uh, the potential benefits of nuclear. Which is ridiculous. What's he up to? Well, look, I mean, this is um, ideology rather than pragmatism, from what I can tell, because the Liberal Party's obsession with throwing a little morsel out there about the notion of nuclear power defies all evidence about the viability of nuclear in the context of Australia or frankly globally. I mean, I've actually done, I did a bit of reading about this in my time off because I've been fascinated by the nuclear debate. I think I, in my callow younger days, once wrote an article about why nuclear needs to be considered in Australia because I was, you know, listening to, to, to the drivel, ideological drivel that we hear now and then. But then once I actually looked into it, the problem with nuclear, yes, it's clean as long as nothing goes wrong. 
but it's actually incredibly expensive to establish. And whilst there are decent quotients of energy consumption that is powered by nuclear around the world, the, the building of new nuclear power and the expansion of nuclear is not something that we're seeing. It is there as, as, as a legacy fuel in the same way that, in a sense, coal is, except coal's dirtier, nuclear's cleaner as long as nothing goes wrong. So the debate about Australia having nuclear power, not only are we too small, not only is there too much that needs to be put in as sunk costs to make it happen in the first place, and not only would that elongate the time frame before which you would get nuclear, which takes us beyond when the expectations are that renewable energy will be able to fulfill some of the things it can't do at the moment, including baseload power. When you put all of that together, we also have a problem because the Australian population, the way that it is small and scattered across the, the major capitals, you can't have nuclear that can satisfy a big enough population base to be economically viable. So this is just drivel that we're hearing from the coalition based on everything I've read and absorbed when it comes to the viability of nuclear. They should move on from it and they should focus, frankly, on gas. I mean, gas is the halfway house between dirty power and purely clean power when it comes to renewables. Okay, so two things about that. I'll get onto the gas, I guess, but uh, because, of course, the Greens say the gas isn't much cleaner than, uh, than coal anyway. It's still a fossil fuel. It still boosts up all those emissions. But on, on the business of nuclear and what Peter Dutton as the new opposition leader is on about, if it is rubbish, and I think you're right, what's he doing here? Is it just so that he can point and say, look, we've got a policy, we've got a point of difference, and this is what we're backing, we're only investigating it. It looks as if he's actually doing something, even if, in fact, there's uh, no likely end for his uh, you know, positive end or productive end to this sort of review. Yeah, I, I think it's about looking like he's debating uh, alternatives more than anything. And I, and I suspect Peter Dutton probably, you know, like a lot of people, hasn't deep-dived in to the true viability of nuclear. I mean, you, you know who should look at this? Uh, you know, here, here I am offering some free advice. The Productivity Commission should do some sort of halfway house paper rather than a full study and just establish once and for all through an independent body with deep public policy understanding whether there is a viability or a lack of viability to nuclear. You know, because that, that would kill the debate. Hasn't this been done, though? To my knowledge, it hasn't. I mean, the Switkowski review way back in, uh, I think it was Howard or something, I brought that up. And there have been a variety of other sort of think tanks and other analyses that have been made. But the Productivity Review has an independence, in, in my view at least, that some of these other organisations have in actuality but don't have in sort of the, the political partisan world that we live in, right? So, you know, I mean, I think the Grattan Institute have done a study as well. They're very independent from my view, but they, it doesn't carry the gravitas of the Productivity Commission. This nuclear debate is, is such a furphy for me. But to answer your question... I suspect that the reason that Peter Dutton is doing it is because he wants to look like he's doing things. And now that they're in opposition, of course, they, they have limited resources at their disposal. So ideas are thrown out there. It's one of the reasons, actually, Hugh, that I've always been somewhat sceptical about the need for oppositions to have the kind of detailed policies that governments often criticise them for not having, because you're not in a position in terms of resource allocations and expertise in opposition to commit to things. Uh, you, you can have broad brush ideas, but it's only once you get into government that you can get studies done and proper scholastic research done to be able to ascertain whether or not some of the ideas that you bring into government are ultimately able to be implemented. And if they're not, 
obviously in the media, we, we would sort of tear an opposition apart for breaking its promise. But frankly, good government and good public policy development would require oppositions to have broad brushstroke ideological ideas. And then once in government, they put them to the expert test and then they come back and they let the public know what is and isn't viable. But, you know, that's the world of fantasy, Hugh, um, unfortunately, because uh, you and, and certainly I, I don't want to taint you with my view on this, but, you know, I would inevitably be critical at some point in my political coverage of an opposition that went down that path, both in opposition and in government, because unfortunately, that's the nature of, of politics. Uh, it does need to change, though, I think. Well, there is a genuine vote coming up on genuine issues, and this is the emission targets of the governments. Uh, the green position is, of course, critical to this. Let's take a quick break, and we'll talk about that and some other issues going on. Welcome back. This is episode 126 of The Professor and the Hack. Thanks for uh, staying with us and, and listening as we grind through this first stages, really, the first flurries of the new parliaments under the new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. And as promised, he's bringing forward the legislation for this emissions cut, 43% by 2030. The Greens critical to this. How does this play? Well, look, I mean, it'll certainly pass the lower house this week. Uh, you know, for listeners, it may have already happened by the time they're listening to us because we're recording this on a Wednesday. Uh, it's, it's Wednesday or Thursday that this is going to go through because Labor committed to passing the emissions reduction legislation by the end of the first sitting fortnight. So they will do that. But of course, that's only the lower house, which is your point, Hugh. It has to get through the Senate as well. And the Greens are critical to that. And, and what we're waiting to find out as we speak is whether the Greens will pass this or not through the Senate as well. The government, for what it's worth, the new Labor government, have been deliberately delaying lower house passage because they're waiting to see what the Greens want, because they want the legislation to be amended in the lower house before it passes so that it can then simply be a tick and flick in the Senate as well, because we know Pocock's on board. So Labor, the Greens and Pocock can pass it, even if there aren't any other crossbenchers or dissenting Liberals who, who support it. So the, the government's plan is to try to get those amendments included before they pass it in the lower house. Because of course, if they pass it in the lower house without having the Greens on board, all that simply means is that then the Senate will make the amendments that the Greens require. And if the government goes along, then it has to go back to the lower house to pass again. Why does the Labor government not want that? Well, they just think it looks messy, right? They would rather just do it all in one quick sweep uh, and then move on. My, my gut feeling, I don't want to put my predictive powers to the test here and, and, and kibosh the whole thing. But I, I do get the sense that a deal will be done. And the argy-bargy that's going on with the Greens uh, at this point in time, which may be resolved by the time people are listening, is at the margins, from what I can tell. Adam Bant, surprisingly to me, I don't know if you agree with this, I was surprised, pleasantly surprised, that he's taken a very open negotiating view about this. I thought that he might be a little bit more, um, you know, a, a little bit more rigid and, and oppose supporting the 43% target because it's not the 75% that the Greens wanted. But happily, he's supporting of it, from what I can tell. Well, his negotiating position at one stage was no more oil and gas, no new oil and gas. That's not something the government can agree to, surely? No, and I don't think I, I, like that the government absolutely won't go down that path. But I, I get the impression that the Greens will acquiesce on some of those things. They'll get other things. But then how does that work with the Green supporters? You know, the, the Green vote has gone up. And the dead set green supporter is going to say, hang on a minute, we voted for you to say we want the end to fossil fuels. 
no new oil and gas. You know, so why, you know, bad, you're not the man we thought you were. That's the danger he faces. I agree. And in a sense, it's, it, that was the fate of the Australian Democrats, right, on, on different issues in, at different points in time, that they were seen to be negotiating away principles that they held dearly. And, and the Greens then filled that space. And we are now where we are in Australian politics with the demise of the Democrats and the rise of the Greens. The answer to your question is, is I'm not saying this is what will happen, but his hope, if they do acquiesce on these things, is just simply that, uh, that they'll be able to do so and, and they will try to you know, frame it. The Greens will try to frame it that this is not a cap, it's, it's, it's the base. So you know, the answer to their critics on the left would be that they're not giving in on their beliefs. They are locking in a minimum that is not good enough and then they'll continue to campaign for that to rise. And that pragmatism, you know, I would support. You know, I, I don't want to make it sound like I, I want to back Bant into a corner where he he's just becomes a blocker and a wrecker in there. I think that works against the uh, the overall purpose of what, what it is they're trying to do. But I'm intrigued as to how this dynamic plays in the coalition ventures because the consequence of the Teal Revolution and just losing government is that their moderate numbers are now reduced down to really, an, you know, they're, they're insignificant inside their own party room, and that surely is going to see the conservative voices dominate to such a degree in the coalition that they're at risk of painting themselves over time as being just a dinosaur rump, don't they? Yeah, look, I I think that's right. But, of course, the the, the coalition are, are, are wedged because, for them, they've got this dinosaur rump, I like that terminology, that, that is their so-called base, right? So what do they do? I mean, I would argue that that base isn't going anywhere. And even if it filters off to some minor parties that entrench, it comes back in preferences other than in exceptional circumstances. And even if it doesn't come back in preferences, you still then have the equivalent to what Labor has with the Greens in Parliament, right? Like they, they don't, the Greens don't support the coalition. They always support Labor, essentially. So I, I think that the coalition has to get real about the mainstream shifting on these sort of issues and therefore capture that centre ground and be willing to move to the centre. where We've got a compulsory voting system. Uh, we have a centre that has views that it does now on issues of climate change. I guess, though, to play devil's advocate to my position on this, I think what part of their thinking is, is that dinosaurs or not, you know, rump or not, I think they take the view that history might repeat itself with Tony Abbott's positioning on some of this even though people believe in climate change quite strongly in one action, I think they're banking on six to 12 months down the line, you know, the economy being so front and centre and cost of living being so front and centre that they can frighten people, that there is an economic cost to lowering emissions that perhaps we want to defer into the future, notwithstanding what we know the climate experts tell us that will mean. In the short term, there probably will be a cost, won't there? Yeah, yeah, there will be, inevitably, yeah. It's interesting as to whether Peter Dutton temperamentally is capable of representing anything but the deep conservative base, particularly kind of a Queensland base. You know, even if he saw that there was a political imperative to try to accommodate more of the centre, I just wonder whether he's got that in him, quite apart from whether he can sell it. I think the sales job is actually the easy part for him internally because he, he, he's sort of Nixon to China, right? Like, who's harder than Peter Dutton? in the Liberal Party. You know, he, he's an interesting figure because he's not a religious conservative. He's, if anything, he's sort of quasi-anti-religious, but he is the hard man of the right, as you well know, right? And if, if he chose 
to stand up to the right on issues. There are few who could do it as effectively, I think, as him. My doubt, which is similar to yours, I think, is, is whether or not he's up for that as opposed to whether he could carry the day. I mean, he's got to be careful because his polling, there was a news poll this week, is, is not great. He suffers from what first-term opposition leaders inevitably suffer from. And it's worse for him, we should remember, than when Labor was in opposition because the leadership rules for the Liberal Party, the protect leaders, only apply in government. They don't apply in opposition. So he can be rolled in the old-fashioned way that an opposition leader can be. So that is perhaps his kryptonite, uh, his, his lack of popularity in the wider public. But the irony, Hugh, is that the potential solution to that lack of popularity in the wider public would be for him as the hard man of the right to stand up to the right and modernise the Liberal Party. But I don't know that he is up for it. But I think he'll pick a few things that he'll do it on. I just don't know that he'll pick the things that I think he should do it on. Climate would be one. Gender would be another. You know, there'd be nothing more powerful in the Liberal Party than Peter Dutton demanding gender quotas and getting his way with the right of the party who are utterly opposed to that. But again, I don't see him doing that either. What a kind of almost an alternative reality you picture there of, of as you say, the, the one guy who can do it dragging everyone around. Like it was, <laughs> it took Ariel Sharon, the Israeli prime minister, to remove the uh, the Jewish settlements out of Gaza. It couldn't have been done, uh, you know, by a left-wing leader. It was the Labour Party that deregistered the militant unions like BLF back in the 1980s because that couldn't have been done by the coalition. So the the point you make has, you know, has deep antecedents. Yep. So let's shift from federal just briefly into a state context, because something very interesting is, is happening across the country. At the moment, there are two states still held by Liberal coalition governments, New South Wales and Tasmania. Does Tasmania count, Hugh? I mean, are they really a state? Well, it's, yeah, I could say mainland. There's only New South Wales. And uh, here's, a, here's one of those kind of... To our Tasmania listeners, we love you. Yes, and here's a quiz for those who are not in Tasmania. Name the Tasmanian Premier. <laughs> Don't ask me either. Jeremy Rockliffe. Who knew? And not to knock him, he's got a job to do, and good luck to him. I make no judgments against him one way or the other. Mm. But what we're, we're seeing with the events of the resignation now, just ahead it would seem of being sacked, of Stuart Ayres, who's a significant figure in the New South Wales Liberal Party. He's the deputy leader of the party in New South Wales, or he was until about an hour before we, <laughs> we got talking. He's the partner of Maurice Payne, who is um, obviously a federal politician of uh, significance, a former foreign minister, former defence minister. And he has you know, fallen on a sword rather too late, some might argue, over his involvement in full extent of his involvement is still somewhat mysterious, but uh, doubtless at some stage we'll get to the bottom of it, his involvement in trying to engineer a job in New York for the former National Party leader in New South Wales, John Barilaro, all very messy. The significance is that New South Wales is committed to an election early next year. And right now, you'd have to say that the Perite government is cooked. They've been in there for a long time, over four premiers. Maybe it's their time. But then we would look at a situation within just over six months from now where Anthony Albanese can, can look up from his office in Parliament House or the Lodge or Kirribilli and see wall-to-wall, sea-to-shining sea, nothing but Labour premiers. This is a moment, isn't it? Well, look, it is. Um, we were talking about this before we started the podcast, uh, so I'm, I'm stealing your point, but it was shortly after Kevin Rudd became Prime Minister that the most senior Liberal in office, as opposed to in opposition, was Campbell Newman when he was Lord Mayor of Brisbane. You know, that wasn't that uh, fun time. So it would be a big deal if New South Wales, as looks likely, goes to the Labor Party 
and you've got a federal Labor government and every mainland state is a Labor government because I can't see in November before then uh, this year the, the Victorian government shifting. I mean, the opposition leader there has got issues. His chief of staff has just been required to resign. So this it's a scandal-plagued New South Wales government now because of this issue, and it's hard to see how they find their feet again. And, you know, I'm not as across Tasmanian politics as perhaps I should be, so I'm not certain whether the Liberal government down there does or doesn't survive. But in a sense, it's immaterial, isn't it? Because it's such a small government uh, and it's, it's, it's such a small quotient of, of Australia and it's not on the mainland. For the New South Wales government to fall, there's all sorts of implications to this. The, the, the bad for the Liberal Party is obviously the, the lack of incumbency, the fundraising, you know, the, the infrastructure. Uh, the potential good for the next Liberal government or the next attempt at a Liberal government from an opposition on the mainland or federally is that you know, they, they can run the argument that you want some balance potentially. So that's, that's the sort of silver lining, glass half full way of looking at it. You mentioned fundraising and people often overlook in the, you know, in, in the normal sort of way of how they relate to their politicians. They don't, they don't always put fundraising at the absolute front of, of the relationship with it. No. And yet the political <laughs> parties themselves put fundraising very much at the front of their, their agendas when they're sitting having their meetings. Mm. How significant is it when you're in opposition everywhere and you're going around to your potential donors asking for cash? Oh. You know, I imagine it's harder to engineer the doors. It, it's, it's a huge barrier. Uh, and, and, it's, and you know, we, we've already got a situation where Obviously, the Liberal Party doesn't get trade union donations the way that Labor does. They rely particularly on corporate donations, and, and the corporate community, by and large, is shifting towards a sort of process of either no donations or equal donations to both sides. Uh, so they're already battling that cultural reality, right? But when you're out of power, that's a huge reason not to donate uh, for a corporate. And when it's particularly so when you don't look like you're about to get back into power, and that, that's the, the key thing. Oppositions that look like they're on a pathway to victory soon can do quite well with fundraising in corporate Australia as well as more generally. But uh, when, when you're a Liberal Party that's just a newly minted opposition, having lost federally, having, if they do lose in March, having four years of opposition ahead of you at a state level, the other big state, Victoria, if they lose in November, they've got a minimum of three years ahead of them with non-government. So this is a huge issue for the Liberal Party. Can I ask you a question, though? This is a little bit sidebar to that. What, what do you think of this? I, like, thinking about the situation with John Barillaro, don't get me wrong, it, like, in my view, it stinks to high heaven, right? But having said that, and this is no defence, for God's sakes, I don't want listeners tweeting me that I'm somehow defending what's happened. But in the wider context of politics, political appointments happen all the time. The mistake here is actually that they had structures in place that are meant to ensure arm's length and you know, that the, there wouldn't be that, that level of political interference. And so, so that's why I'm not defending it, Hugh. I need to be clear about that. What I'm saying is in a different time or in a different structure, we, we see political appointments to these sort of roles at a federal level in particular, but also at a state level all the time. And a former trade minister becoming the, the trade commissioner of itself, you know, I think most people roll their eyes and go, oh, it's just another political appointment. But if they didn't have the structures in place as well as the correspondence that we've seen that makes this stink to high heaven, which it does, you know, this would just be another political bloody appointment, right? Well, yeah, but, but it would have damaged the government anyway because it's a jobs for the boys look. And the fact that he was given a rails run 
you know, the thing, the job had apparently been all but given to uh, someone else who was deemed a good candidate, then reopened and made to be a ministerial appointment so he could engineer it. The evidence has come out from his own staff with quite a display of disloyalty, saying uh, that he was openly saying, ah, that's my job, I'm going to get out of this bloody place, and he didn't use bloody... And that's the point, isn't it? Yeah. Like, all of that is why I'm, I'm not, for God's sake, so I don't want anyone to think I'm defending it. I'm just saying that if it was a different structure and they didn't have all of that in place, which it's a good thing that they do, yes. frankly, because we all hate political appointments. You know, the, the next ambassador to Washington, just like the last one, is going to be a political appointment, no doubt, this time Labor rather than Liberal. We see it with the High Commissioner to the UK. We see it as the, you know, as, as the, the Holy See. Well, the Holy See tends to be as well. Well, those are the two, aren't they? Well, the Holy See is, yeah, you just get a senior Catholic and give them a chance to run <laughs> around. The UN, you know, you've got Mitch Fifield and it'll probably get replaced in the same way. I, I don't like it. I'm not defending it. It's just one of those things, isn't it, where if you want to give an appointment as a job for the boys to an ex-poly, then you just have to own it from the get-go. Don't try and do it this way because then that's where – it's the cover-up, Hugh, that will get you. Yes. And that's what this is, uh, in, in my view. They have gone They have gone to that. And you raise a good point. Is there any evidence that those political appointments necessarily been worse than ones who might have come through a public service career diplomats and so on? You know, the argument gets made that political appointments, particularly for places like well, Washington, number one, but also to a lesser degree from the UK, have value because, particularly in Washington, people who want to talk to our ambassador in Washington like to know that they're have got a direct phone call through to the Prime Minister in Canberra and that they're not just simply filing diplomatic cables that will maybe find their way up the chain of command. And so it's the same as Caroline Kennedy, the, the US ambassador, the new US ambassador to Australia, has that extra pizzazz about her, not just because of her surname, but because of her surname. She has that direct connection into Biden. And if she says something, feels as if she needs to say something, there'll be several of those barriers between her and the Oval Office are just automatically opened up. So th there can be an argument made for political appointments for those officers. Mm. But, you know, a hell of a lot of politicians have had, well, on top of, in the past, certainly, their well-padded superannuation, and I realise those are diminishing now, there are fewer and fewer on those, have had these gigs. And, and that's before we get started on the ones, you know, these middling to bloody awful political failures, loyal to their parties. Oh, yeah, don't. We then get appointed to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, often often with no legal qualifications whatsoever. And as it turns out, the analysis that gets made, sometimes appalling decision-making processes and getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, there are a myriad of scandals and people are right to be cynical. And, and the same thing goes for board appointments to, to government boards of various types. You know, Australia Post is just one of, of many where where we see this. And it's, yeah, look, it's, I mean, God, you know, you'd, you'd be crazy to defend it. I mean, my point is more just one of uh, you either own it and embrace it or you do it properly. And what they tried to do, from what I can gather, with that trade commissioner role out of New South Wales is they, they, they wanted the job for the boys, but they didn't want to own it as a, a, just another one of these ex-politician, you know, sort of gravy train roles. And hasn't it cost them? And that's the point. And oh, has it not? Has it not? Hasn't it yeah. cost them? And I think if there was any prospect that Perrottet, one thing about Perrottet is that he came in after Gladys Berejiklian, who we know was brought down by ICAC because of her undeclared relationship with a cook politician on her own side. That was what that was about. Perrottet comes up as this kind of 
do right Catholic, you know, father of six now, seven since he's come to office, a man of absolute kind of rectitude and uh, talent at public policy. And he has, he might have had a prospect of winning him another term. And he, I would say right now he's got no prospect and he's been done down by the shabbiness, really the shabbiness of others. Do you have sympathy for that? I don't know. But you have to look at John Barillaro, one time wonder boy, great retail politicians. You know, whenever you hear someone say someone is a great retail politician, you set the clock running for when there is scandal and a disaster. <laughs> yeah. And also with Perite, it's just by the next time we talk, we'll see whether or not he's managed to cauterize the wound with Stuart Ayres going. Because my read on it before Stuart Ayres went was that, you know what? I thought he had to go, but if Stuart Ayres goes, what comes next? Is Perrottet next? We haven't heard a lot from Matt Keane recently. Uh, he's been very quiet, particularly with a 43% emissions reduction target legislation going through the federal parliament. You'd normally expect to hear from the New South Wales Treasurer about that because he's got a passion for climate change, but he has been nowhere to be seen. I think, I think at this stage, this close to an election, who would want that particular chalice? I don't disagree with that. But, you know, maybe he just takes the view that he's young. They're going to be out of office for 10 years. I wouldn't mind ticking the box to have been Premier for four or five months. It is possible, I'm just saying, it's possible that this doesn't cauterise the wound, but it confirms, rather, that the fish rots from the head down and getting rid of Stuart Ayres has not saved the day for Dom Perrottet, particularly given what we know about what he did or didn't know, right? There's, there, there are question marks there, so we'll see. Yeah, yeah. And how much time it took to get to the heir's departure. You know, they, if it you could have done it earlier. Yep. What a hell mess. But the nation trucks on, we hope, at least long enough for us to get our next Professor in the Hack podcast going out in the next week or so. <laughs> Peter, fantastic. Good to talk to you. Likewise, as always. You have been listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.